Galatians chapter 6 and verses 6 through 10. This is the inerrant word of God. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. Father God, we come and submit our hearts once again before your word. We come uh, not uh, fearing the arrows that uh, your word may uh, shoot, knowing that in Jesus Christ uh, we are clean, we are pure. And even though there may be sins that we need to uh, uh, change and grow in, that our security legally before your court is to never be questioned. We praise and bless you for that. And so I pray that we would come with the intent of pleasing you, not with the intent of seeking to be secure. And I pray as we look at your word, it would be something that would reach into our hearts and transform us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today, I, um, because we're ending this, I thought it might be good if I uh, just gave a little bit of a review and if you'd put up the overhead there, just quickly going through what some of the laws are that we have covered. Uh, if any of you want a little bit more uh, detail, at least under number one, I do have some handouts up here on the front row that you can come and get. I don't have very many of them, but it's probably about ten of them or so in there. And uh, law number one says that we reap only when there has been sowing, only when there has been sowing. And uh, we looked at ten essentials of biblical sowing that are laid down in the Scripture. We can't expect to grow in evangelism if we're not sowing evangelistically, right? We can't expect our marriages to thrive if we are not investing seed, putting good into our marriages. We can't expect a retirement account to grow, you know, if you're not investing money into your retirement plan. So it's a, a very obvious principle, and yet it's one that we neglect. Uh, many times, and especially in terms of those ten principles. I'm surely not going to go over those ten principles. There's ten ways to make sure you are sowing and you are investing correctly. Law number uh, two says that we reap the same kind that we sow. Now, that's so obvious, it's almost insulting to teach on it, and yet uh, I have chosen to teach on that law because we violate it so many times. Uh, for example, when people are... Um, uh, necking and engaging in uh, foreplay uh, when they're not married, and yet they claim that they will not have any fornication down uh, the road. They're claiming this law doesn't really work. God doesn't know what he's talking about. I can invest a sexual sin and still retain a, um, a sexual seed and still retain a pure relationship. We violate this law economically. We violate it on marriages. There's so many different areas that, that we live through. So we reap the same kind that we sow. Uh, we can't expect to reap something totally different than than what we are, are, are sowing. Then law three says that we reap a multiplied increase of what we sow. Uh, that can be a real scary law when you're thinking about your sins that uh, 
you have sowed, you can't just say any longer, oh, well, it's just a little tiny sin. No, a little tiny sin sprouts into a bunch of sins, which sprout into even more. It always grows. It always grows. But it's incredibly encouraging when you're thinking about what you've been sowing into society or into your family in terms of righteousness. You might think, oh, man, this is so overwhelming. I've got so much to do. My little efforts aren't going to count for anything, so I'm just going to quit sowing righteousness. And then you think about this law and you say, no, God has promised there's always going to be a multiplied increase. So whether it's in my lifetime or somebody else's lifetime, I'm going to keep sowing into their lives. Now, we saw that that law applies in a wide-ranging way, that there is always this uh, growth principle. And we saw how um, uh, communism denies this in the area of uh, economics, as does um, uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, denied that. In fact, they said that... uh, Money is sterile, that uh, gaining interest in the bank is immoral. And uh, when the Reformation applied these principles, along with a number of other economic principles, it revolutionized Protestant Europe. Uh, they said, no, money does not is not an exception to this. There's always a multiplied increase when there is uh, dominion. We saw there were profound ramifications, even for optimism in science and, and in other areas. Law number four, we reap in a different season. Then we sow. Uh, and this law not only presupposes that we have faith in God's providential control. You know, you're putting a seed in and you're expecting a harvest down the road and you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm investing a lot. Is there something that's going to come from this? You're trusting God's providence to do what he says that he will do. But you know, the most important point I think of this is that it makes you future oriented. You are not being driven by the present, which is your stomach that's growling, you know, and saying, should I eat this or should I plant it? No, you're planting because down the road you're expecting a much greater harvest. And we saw the profound difference that future is, a future perspective being driven by the future can make as opposed to a present-oriented person. A present-oriented person, uh, if it's taken to its logic, most logical conclusion, is just going to be a hunter-gatherer seeking out an existence, and it's impossible for them to prosper. So to the degree that we are future-oriented, to that degree, we've got the potential for prospering in every area of of life, including the economic uh, area. Okay, number five, we reap the full harvest of the good. Only if we persevere, the evil comes to harvest on its own. <laughs> we saw under that uh, law number five that that uh, 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 time is a, uh, a scarce resource. We're called to persevere. Uh, that uh, you know, compounded growth over time, you know, may not impress a, a person who's always motivated by quick grit or quick. What is it? Rich get get rich. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, he's not very motivated by that because he wants something now. If it's not now, he just can't see it. And so this one actually builds on law number four. And so it says, no, we've got to see time as a resource and that time is one of the essential ingredients of causing this growth of prosperity spiritually or any other area over time. Uh, it applies to the whole concept of people who want instant sanctification. That doesn't work that way. 
it's a growth process. It's not a step process where you haven't arrived and suddenly you're you're into perfection. And there's all kinds of forms of perfectionism out there. No, there's a growth process, compounded growth over time as you keep investing spiritually or financially, whatever. Okay, the next uh, uh, one, number six, we reap in proportion to our diligence. And we saw that uh, this uh, was really at the foundation of the Protestant work ethic, which had such a profound effect upon uh, Western society, especially those in the um, the countries that had been impacted by the Reformation. And uh, that companies that flourish the most are the ones that serve their customers the most, right? There's got to be that work ethic, and we cannot expect to prosper spiritually or in our marriages if we don't work at those things. And so there's got to be uh, there's got to be uh, uh, work. And by the way, uh, communism, as I've mentioned, actually is the antithesis of all of these laws on this point. They uh, many times rob, we pointed out, uh, rob citizens of initiative and industry. Why should I work harder uh, if I'm going to get the same income whether I work hard or work little? You know, and so it, it robs people of initiative and industry, and as a result, it robs them of income and prosperity. And so these things, they all hang together in, in all of life. Okay, number seven, we reap from the sowing of others. This is something a lot of people in their pride try to get away from. Uh, they don't want to be beholden to others, but we saw you can't get away from it. You do reap from what this government uh, has sown, whether it's sown something good or whether it's sown something evil. You may not have made the decision. doesn't matter. You're covenantally related to the nation, and you are impacted by that. And we are we are reaping from the incredible many generations later from the incredible plantings that Puritan founding fathers of this nation. We're reaping from we didn't sow any of that. We're still reaping the fruits long after uh the 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 you know the Christian Christianity has disappeared pretty much from the social fabric of our nation. And so uh this is related in the church. Uh, body life. We need to be willing to not only uh, receive and reap where we have not sown from the sowing of others, but we need to be willing to sow into the lives of other people in ways we're not going to immediately benefit. Okay, because it goes both ways. That's why we're covenantally connected together. And I won't. I, I'm starting to preach. I, I'm supposed to just be you. Okay, we'll we'll leave that be. So we reap from the sowing of others, and then that brings us to today's law which says we cannot do anything about last year's bad harvest, but we can do something about this year's harvest. Okay, We can do something about what we're planting and watering and fertilizing and all of that kind of stuff with this year's harvest. And so that, that's where I want, to, I want to pick up. And notice I did not say that we can't do anything about the plants that have grown from what we sowed last year. There's a, there's a difference. You can pluck up. You can pluck up seed that's been sown. You can pluck up plants that have been sown. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, Christ says Satan's doing that all the time. You know, with the seed of the word that gets sowed into your life, he says those birds come down and they immediately snatch that word, that, that, that seed up, and he says that's what Satan is doing. He takes the word as soon as it is sown. So, for example, uh, when I'm preaching and I'm sowing God's word into your lives, what Satan tries to do through his demons is uh, uh, get you to forget it. And so you resist that by taking notes or by memorizing. 
and uh, you know, other ways in which he tries to keep you from remembering the word and allowing it to take root is to just intellectualize it, not put it into practice. And so the body comes alongside of you and says, no, you can't do that. Uh, they exhort one another unto good works. But it's very easy for Satan to pluck up a plant or to pluck up seed. Actually, in Cambodia, there was an entire culture that all of the previous culture by revolution had been plucked up. The uh, people who were educated were destroyed. A third of the country was cut off. And so there's a bad example, you know, of um, of revolution and redoctrination, completely plucking up the plants and all so that they're not sown. But we need to do that in the spiritual realm. We need to be willing to, um, and I think we probably got that uh, long enough, but we we need to uh, be willing to pluck up the bad seed that we have sowed in the past. Try to get rid of the plants. But once the harvest has come, okay, there's going to be more plants that are going to be growing from that. There's not a lot that you can do about the past. You can deal with the present, and that's what this what this uh, law is about. Uh, a modern American proverb along these lines, and maybe you've heard this, is it doesn't do any good to cry over spilled milk. Right? We've all heard that. Basically, it's saying, you know, not just, just clean up the mess and go on from there. It's not going to help any to be crying over the spilt milk. And that's what is assumed in verse 9, Galatians 6, verse 9, in those phrases, let us not grow weary. And then the last one, do not lose heart. What makes a person lose heart? <laughs> well, it's, it's some of his failures that he's had in the past. You know, we tend to get discouraged. Maybe you don't. I tend to get discouraged. And it's so easy to cringe over some of the failures that we have had, some of the sins, some of the stupid things that we have done in the past, to just cringe over that and and to be paralyzed, not go on in um, maybe that relationship or whatever it may be. During the Great Depression, there were a lot of people who, uh, having lost everything in the stock market crash, committed suicide. They just couldn't handle the loss of the past harvest. Now, there were other people who got up and they tried again. Some of them made another fortune. In fact, there are some people who have lost their fortune more than once, and they've gotten right back up there, and they've continued to persevere. Um, but um, uh, many people just don't learn from their past mistakes. They are paralyzed by them. Thomas Edison, the inventor of the electric light bulb, uh, claims this may be an exaggeration, I don't know, but he, especially since he's an even number, but he claims that he experimented 10,000 times before he finally got the light bulb to work. And he says, these were not failures. I just discovered 9,999 different ways that the bulb didn't work. Okay? And I like his perspective, and I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, because if there was any person who who should have been discouraged and so depressed over his past life that he would give up, uh, it would be the Apostle Paul. Previously, he had been a blasphemer. He was a murderer. He had killed many in the church. He tried to destroy the church, and he prided himself in that. And I can just imagine the Apostle Paul. Here he is. He's killed so many Christians. Now he becomes a Christian, and he goes into the churches. And I can just imagine him cringing, wondering, you know, is there... 
some woman here whose husband I've killed before? Is there some other relative who hates my guts because of what I've done in their life? He could have forever had so many regrets that he would not have been affected. I mean, just think about it this way. Paul was converted late in life, right? So you could say, look at all the life that I've wasted. Not only was he converted late in life, he had spent so many of his energies in gaining a rabbinic education, which if you study the rabbinic education, it was a lot of superstition. Most of it was junk. He treated it as garbage, as rubbish to be moved out of the way. And not only that, Paul had spent uh, quite a number of years trying to climb the social ladder so that he could get up into the Sanhedrin. That was quite an accomplishment. And then he leaves that all behind. And he might think, what a wasted life. All that I've invented, all I've invested for not. And he didn't do that. I want you to look with me at Philippians chapter 3 and verses 13 through 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, we need to have the same mind. It's the mark of maturity uh, to, to have the same mind. And maybe you've uh, wasted a lot of years, and you have uh, been tempted by Satan to wonder if it's worth even bothering investing again because of everything that's been wasted. I want to use an illustration to show uh, how foolish that kind of thinking might be. Think of it this way. If a bank credited to your bank account, your checking account, $86,400 every single day, um, but they stipulated that you had to use that money because it would not carry over to the next day. Whatever you didn't use in that day would be lost. And you'd want to use it quickly. And you'd think of missions. And even if you couldn't spend it, you know, on house and everything, you'd be thinking of all kinds of things you could use that money on. Now, let's just suppose you just discovered that the bank's been doing this for the past 20 years. You'd be kicking yourself for not having used all of that money. You might be thinking, what a waste of money. But you wouldn't spend too much time uh, mourning about that, would you? You'd get right on the stick. You'd start spending. Yeah, it's too bad I didn't have that before. But you'd start spending those $86,400. Well, here, think of it this way. God has credited to your account, every one of your accounts, 86,400 seconds every day. Okay? And what you do not use to his glory will never be able to be reclaimed. You can't, you know, transfer it over to the next day. It is lost. It is wasted. If it is not vested for eternity, it is gone. You cannot use it again. And yet, what many people do is they sit and they stew and they think, you know, I've only been converted at 80 years old or whatever the thing might be. Or maybe I've been converted, uh, you know, only at 20 years old. Look at all the years that I've uh, wasted in the past. And they, they, they mourn about the fact they're not as advanced as other people are in their Christianity. And it discourages them. And it immobilizes them. And what they need to do is say, well, forget about that. I can do something about the present. And I can enable my children to go beyond where I've been able to go. We've got to have that kind of an attitude rather than being driven 
uh, by the failures we've had in the past. And I urge you to be sensitive to the Spirit's promptings and use those moments of time to His glory. Now, don't become a workaholic because Scripture commands you to also relax, right? It commands you to have enjoyable fellowship. It commands marital relationships. It commands fun with your children. It commands eating. So there's, there, there's fun, there's work. You have to have the balance of Scripture. But all of those things, whether it's fun or whether it's not fun, can count for eternity when you're, when you're sowing to the Spirit, as we've described in previous sermons. Now, what determines your future is God's future goal for you. Uh, I've known uh, people who, because they were abused as a child, or perhaps they were abusers themselves, have become so paralyzed at cringing, just thinking, I just, I can't bear to live with myself, thinking of what they have done. They think that they're of no future value to God's kingdom. Why? They think their past determines their present. That's a lie of the evil one. Your past can't even explain the future, let alone determine the future. What determines your future is God's future goals for you. That's what determines, okay? It's his predestined predestining you to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what determines uh, the, the, the present. And so don't buy into that lie. And here's just a couple of ways you can tell whether or not you have uh, been um, violating this law here. When somebody comes up with something new, you immediately say, oh, we've never done it that way, and uh, resist that new change. That may be an indicator that your past harvests are controlling you too much, whether positively or negatively. Uh, or we've never done it that way before. Or I've tried that and it didn't work. Well, how many times have you tried it? You know, some people have only tried it one time and failed, and that's all it took, you know, for it to get them to quit uh, trying again. Now, this law cuts both ways. Some people are determined by the bad in their past. Some people sit on their hunches. Is that the right expression? from all the good that they've accomplished in the past, they're not trying any, any further now. Or because uh, things have worked well this way in the past, they're resistant to any change. Good enough for me, it's good enough for my kids, you know. Uh, and uh, they're not willing to try new things. There's many different ways in which we can be gripped by the past. Um, the potato famine in Ireland is an example where people just always did it the same way. They resisted. Even when they were told uh, to make changes in their agriculture, they resisted because it's never been done this way before. The, um, the boll weevil plague and the depleted soil in the south is uh, another example. But, in fact, doctors, I think, are another example. I can say this because we're related to doctors. Uh, but doctors are resistant to any change, you know, that hasn't been already accepted for quite a number of years. Um, the first guy that suggested that doctors needed to wash their hands between patients was ridiculed. Absolutely ridiculed. It took a long time before doctors finally bought into that. Washing hands between patients, that's ridiculous. Uh, we all, though, I think, fall into the same rut. We like to get stuck in a rut. And uh, that's true not just of, um, of uh, Presbyterians. That's true of Charismatics. I was talking with a pastor friend here in Omaha who is... Uh, Charismatic and said, man, it's just weird. You can make a change, and a year later, people will die over making a change in that area. It's only one year, but it's a condition already. Okay? Just because it's worked in the past, or this is so the way, it does not mean you have to be stuck in the rut. 
Now, I think one of the most common ways people fail on this law is paralysis because of sunk costs. Sunk costs. And this is true whether it's uh, refusing to get rid of stocks that are going down. And I tell you, people, oh, man, I don't dare sell now because I'll be losing so much. Yeah, you might be losing more if you don't sell. But many times people are paralyzed by that. Socialism is just um, one of many ways, I think, uh, in which this law is neglected. Let me just read you a quote from Gary North. North says, Today it is only the Marxist entrepreneur or planner who ignores the doctrine of sunk costs. I think that's an exaggeration. I think lots of people ignore the doctrine of sunk costs. But anyway, he, he does make a good point here. He says, The inefficiency of Soviet planning is in part traceable to just this ignorance. The socialist wants us to believe that capitalism is wasteful because it permits plants to be shut down by owners. And here he quotes their complaint. Look at all the investment that is wasted. Capitalists sank so much capital into those projects, and now it is all lost. Here's his response. The fact that under capitalism, plants lie empty should be seen as a blessing. Capitalism has permitted us to count the cost of continuing any given process of production. It encourages us to abandon the wasteful processes. The market is a constant reminder to us that there are such things as errors of investment. It reminds us that once a plant is built, we must make the best use of it that we can, and sometimes this means doing nothing with it. If doing something with it ties up additional scarce economic resources and wastes them. Capitalism demands that we make the best of a poor decision in the past. Socialism, by keeping plants in operation which are wasting scarce resources, permits men to make the worst of a poor decision in the past. The unused capacity argument is utterly fallacious. An economically irrational refusal to acknowledge the validity of the doctrine of sunk costs has led many people to personal financial disaster. He's basically saying a violation of law number eight has led many people to personal financial disaster. Anyway, he goes on. The man who refuses to let go of the rope at 14 feet, his, his analogy that he had started with is person whose a balloon's going up and he's hanging onto the balloon and it's like five feet off the ground. Do I let go? Man, that might hurt. And then he gets up to 14 feet. Do I let go? And uh, that, that was his illustration. And he says, the man who refuses to let go of the rope at 14 feet had better be fairly sure that the balloon is not going to carry him even higher. And so, first of all, we must not be driven by the past. That's sub-point number one. Okay, we must not be driven by the past. We've got to be driven by the future. Second, we must learn from the past. Even Christ learned from the past, according to Hebrews 5 and verse 8. See, we can learn from the triumphs of people before us, the mistakes of people before us. We can learn from our own mistakes. And, get this, we can, we can help other people to learn from our mistakes. Now, that's that takes some humility to be able to admit you've made mistakes and to be advertising it and telling people, hey, don't do that. I've tried that and I made a big mess up of it. Uh, but you know what? This is one of the ways that you can help to undo some of the bad harvest that came from your past decisions. This is marvelous. People, again, you know, are unwilling to pursue that. But I think this is one of the neatest ways in which we can increase our good harvest undo the bad. We can tell other people 
help them to avoid the mistake we've made. They increase their harvest. We share in their increased harvest in eternity. Okay? So it's a marvelous way of undoing bad past mistakes that you have made. You learn from the past. You help other people to learn from your bad past. Third thing that you can do is to confess the past. 1 John 1.9 says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, 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 all unrighteousness. So many people think they committed a sin that just cannot be forgiven. They can't forgive themselves. But he says he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And once you've confessed it, don't keep cringing over it. In fact, I think I ought to give a whole sermon on it. I'm not going to, but uh, one of the remedies for cringing over the bad decisions you've made in the past, and I've, I've done the same thing. I'm still tempted to do that. I just cringe over some of the things that I've done. But you know what that is? It's pride, pure and simple. It is pride, pure and simple. You don't want others to think of you as being worse than your facade that you've put up. You know, if you've been crucified with Christ, means you've been condemned by the law. And if you've been condemned by the law and you understand the full condemnation of what that law has said about you, you really appreciate that. There isn't anybody, anything anybody else can say in terms of criticism of you that's going to have any impact on your life. Why? Because you know you're a hundred times worse than anybody thinks you are. So even if they're way off the mark in their criticism, it doesn't bother you. Because you realize, man, if they knew one hundred of how bad I am in terms of God's law, there would be a whole lot more criticism coming in. God's law has already criticized me, and I am secure in Jesus, in his righteousness, and men can throw whatever darts and arrows at me that they want. I'm free. I'm secure in him. I don't need other people's approval. All I need is the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm preaching a totally different sermon. Um, confess the past. That's what we were talking about. I guess it's, it's related. Go forward. This is the fourth thing that you need to do. Go forward. Paul pressed forward and he exhorted us to press forward. And so don't let Satan discourage you. Press forward. If you have fallen into the same sin 9,999 times, like Thomas Edison, maybe it's that 10,000th time, you know, where you're finally going to gain the victory over that besetting sin. Go forward. Don't be sitting in your tracks because of past failures. Let's plant with faith in God's providence. Hope in the future that he has for us and a love for his kingdom. Now we've ended the, the eight laws of harvest, but let me remind you that if you don't put them into practice, they're absolutely useless to you. This is not just something that is intended to, you know, titillate your imagination during uh, one sermon. Uh, it'd have to be a much more interesting sermon to do that. This is facts that are intended to change you. And if you're not implementing these these facts. They're not going to do you any good. So they're designed to review and apply and review again. And I'm hoping to have these all in a tape tape set that you can do exactly that with. But these are foundational laws. If you don't get the foundations right, you're not going to get anything else right. And these foundational laws apply to every area. And so I just really encourage you to uh, be reviewing these and putting them into practice. But um, let's be people of faith, believing that uh, God's going to prosper us as his people because uh, he stands behind these laws. These laws are consistent. They're universal. They're predictable. And uh, they're applicable to our lives.
be people of faith. And commend their hearts. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your patience with us. And oh Lord, when we see all of the incredible times that we goof up, that we fail, that we have done horrible things in the past, that your blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We praise and bless you that in Jesus we have security, security that enables us to keep on keeping on, to get up when we have lost and try again. And I pray, Father, that each person here would follow through on these eight laws of harvest and through them you would bring into their lives incredible prosperity spiritually, emotionally, physically, uh, financially, socially. Lord, that you would uh, fulfill 3 John verse 2 in our lives, that we may prosper in all things. 